Hello everyone, welcome to Theory of Architecture. My guest today is Cleo Valentine. She is a systems designer, neuroarchitectural researcher and doctoral candidate at the University of Cambridge Department of Architecture. She is also currently an associate at Cambridge Architectural Research, where she provides consultancy services on public health and architecture. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation. I really, really enjoyed this one. We really got into the depths of the subject. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's a topic that you can think more about as people within the architectural world or people just interested in architecture. And please do leave us a review, especially on Apple and Spotify as well, um, and follow the YouTube channel. It really helps us out. I want to grow this channel a bit more and get a bit more content coming in more regularly as well. And to do that, the more reviews, the more feedback, the more uh, recommendations I have, the better. Thank you, everyone, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Cleo Valentine, welcome to the podcast. Now, oh, thanks so much for having me. Now, tell us a little bit about what your background is and how you got to be doing what you're doing currently, and then what exactly that is. Okay, yeah, so my background's really in kind of architectural theory and urban systems. Um, urban systems being kind of a branch off of like urban studies, I suppose, but it's a very Canadian thing. Um, it's a program that they have in McGill, um, which is in Montreal. And it's kind of the intersection of architecture with sociology, economics, criminology, it could be um, kind of biology or evolutionary biology. And it's trying to kind of bring in this really interdisciplinary approach to the built environment. Um, so not necessarily just architecture or, or buildings specifically, but also the way cities develop over time, kind of, a, it's almost a human geography degree, but with a very kind of built environment focus. Um, and while I was at McGill, I ended up going to University of Copenhagen, primarily because of Gale Architects. I saw their documentary and I just thought that the kind of human-based approach or kind of observational-based approach to urban design, particularly with all of the UN statistics about kind of increasing urbanization seemed really, really interesting. Um, that kind of led to my research, um, which was at Oxford, my, my MSc, which was in kind of urban development or sustainable urban development, but they kind of gave me a bit of free reign. And so I ended up doing um, a research project on um, architectural neuroaesthetics and public health. And this idea that I had that there was this physiological inclination to beauty that might be representative of some benefit to our physical health. So I ended up being kind of developing a machine learning algorithm to try and assess architectural facades and then cross-reference those geospatially located images of buildings with public health census data. Um, and trying to see if actually there were some trends in the types of buildings that are in people's radius or kind of the average distance that most people spend the majority of their time. Um, is there some relationship on a large scale, like on a public health scale that's measurable and quantifiable? Um, is there some kind of measurable benefit in health? And there was. I mean, it's a it's a study that certainly could use more kind of fortification and it was an exploratory um, activity but it indicated something and I, and I desperately wanted to know what that something was. You know, I, I really loved the idea that in this instance, it was kind of beauty or neuroaesthetics or a physiological response to the built environment and our inclinations had this impact on our physiology, but I really wanted to understand what that physiological response was. 
Um, so that really led me to my research now, which is on what I'm kind of calling architectural neuroimmunology, um, which is really the study of how buildings or architectural form. I'm primarily interested in the kind of visual exposure of architecture. There are the people who are kind of more interested in, you know, auditory or thermal comfort, which are all very um, important as well. But I'm particularly interested in visual exposure to architectural form. So the kind of geometric configuration of buildings and urban forms and how that impacts the brain um, via the immune system. And so I'm particularly interested in neuroinflammation which is inflammation of the brain, which is a kind of immune mediated response to various different environmental triggers. It could be bacterial or viral, um, some microbial, um, but it could also be autoimmune, but it can also be environmental and that could be environmental toxins. It can be all kinds of different things. But my kind of working theory right now is that visual exposure to architectural design may mediate these inflammatory responses. Um, and we know that neuroinflammation, the rates of neuroinflammation are increasing and neuroinflammation is one of the primary drivers in a lot of neurodegenerative conditions like dementia, um, but also psychiatric conditions. So, you know, um, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, and those are particularly prevalent and increasing um, in their prevalence in urban environments. So that's the research that I'm doing right now, which is my doctoral research, and that's at Cambridge. I think you're, you're right to say that it's rare to be actually directly assessing the aesthetic side of architecture rather than lots of mm -hmm. other stuff because I've I found plenty of research on as you say like thermal comfort and mm -hmm. sort of even things like wayfinding and stuff like that and color palettes and contrasting yeah. when, in relation to that sort of thing but actually assessing the the pure aesthetics and can I say you mentioned the b word first beauty <laughs> we'll, mm. we'll get on to that um mm. I think it's it's great that you're doing that kind of research. I think there needs to be a lot more of that. So what, obviously you're quite early on in a lot of the research you're doing and the classic mm. response to any study is more research is needed. Mm. Um, what findings have you sort of begun to see in what you've done so far? Yeah. So when I was kind of getting into the neuroaesthetics world, which I'm still in, but but less so in the kind of traditional sense but the thing that kept coming back to me was this biophilic design biophilic design and and i really kind of traced it back i mean i'm a huge fan of nico salangaro's work and i feel like it's really revolutionary and i love the kind of uh, mathematic complexity and kind of um, analytical side of that um but i also got really interested in something called constructal law um, um have you heard of it no what's that Okay, so constructor law is a kind of fundamental physics principle, and I probably won't describe it super well, but it's defined by this guy, um, Adrian Bijan, who's at Duke. So from what I understand, um, he is a engineer by training, and he became really interested in kind of energy flows and efficiency. And he kind of kept coming to the same conclusion that the most efficient distribution of energy always ended up being this kind of fractalized biomorphic form that was repeating throughout nature. And that it wasn't a fluke, it wasn't some, you know, kind of just a happy accident that we see these patterns repeating in so many different ways, but it's actually derived from very fundamental physics principles that are kind of determined by, you know, the thermodynamic systems on Earth, planetary, all of these different driving forces. And I thought that was really interesting. So I was like, okay, that really drives a lot of the biophilic design. And it also explains to an extent why biophilic design isn't just the incorporation of organic material. It's so much more than that. And it can be the incorporation of these 
kind of geometric forms into architectural design or can be the mimicry of them, like, you know, Corinthian columns. It can be all kinds of different things, which I also feel is very freeing for architects because it doesn't necessarily mean that there's this prescriptive, you have to do it this way. It's these kind of principles that you can incorporate however you like. But I kind of took that biophilic thread and I'm trying to kind of pull it through into this neuroinflammatory or neuroimmunology research. So my first pilot study was really on can visual exposure to biophilic architectural designs, which you have to kind of define um, quite clearly in this context, downregulate neuroinflammatory responses. So can it reduce neuroinflammation and preliminary study, pilot study, but encouraging. And the results suggested that potentially it does. And so the research that I'm kind of working on now is really can the lack of certain architectural forms or, and again, it needs to be defined very clearly, but are there certain ways that we design that increase neuroinflammatory activity without us really knowing it? Kind of seemingly benign forms that we incorporate into architecture all the time that aren't necessarily biophilic. And how does that increase inflammation or does it increase inflammation in the brain? Um, so that's sort of what I'm working with. And a lot of it is dealing with the methodological limitations of architectural science or applied architectural science. How do you identify specific deviations in architectural form? How do you manipulate them? How do you test them? Um, so it's a work in progress for sure. Yeah, well, there's so many- More research is needed. More research is <laughs> More needed. More research is always needed. <laughs> there's so many confounding variables, isn't it? That's the trouble. It's so hard to define exactly what it is that you're measuring yeah. and control for everything else. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot, there are a lot. I do think that some of the kind of technological innovations that we have are making it easier. Again, you always have to state, and I try and state it very clearly and at the beginning that there are so many limitations to this research, but the only way we move through limitations is to conduct research and, and try to do it better and better and better at each time. But there are a lot of confounding variables. The kind of VR, AR side of things is really interesting, especially the more realistic it gets. Um, that being said, I just published a paper on kind of some of the neurophysiological health concerns of virtual architecture and how we need to be careful when it comes to constructing these kind of virtual worlds, particularly because they don't necessarily adhere to the same fundamental laws of physics. So we don't necessarily have the same constraints on gravity, things like that. But there are there are a lot. So it's really trying to kind of peel that back. And I feel like that's where neuroarchitecture, architectural health has always tried to kind of um, develop develop through or move beyond but yeah well you're 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 not even a lot of, there's been a lot of research that does well some research that does rely on sort of self-reported uh inputs mm -hmm. and factors related to i don't know happiness and like self mm -hmm. self-reported um variables and then relating that to architecture but you are actually looking directly at the the actual neurological responses which is i think the sort of the real fundamental proper science if you like um yeah. of it which is <laughs> the crazy thing to me is that it's not always the same you know that's the thing that kind of comes up in the neuroaesthetics research what we think we like or consciously what we incline towards and what we physiologically positively respond to are not always the same thing so the kind of self-reporting has so much value in terms of kind of understanding our conscious preferences and all of this but our physiological response, it's a whole other world. It's a whole other world that's going on in our physiology that we're not really super aware of. 
Um, yeah, you can't. You can't lie with your physiological responses, can you? That's the trouble. No, you cannot. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. so you've done some research using VR. Is that right? Using like creating environments to sort of study how people are responding in the VR settings. Well, that's kind of the emerging research that I'm working on right now and kind of defining it right now is trying to understand what are the limitations of using VR. I mean, one of the kind of interesting principles is actually, you know, even showing someone a 2D image of an architectural form seems to tell us something. It doesn't tell us everything, but it tells us something. And I guess that's kind of the biomimicry side of things. This idea that, you know, if you show someone um, if you put a fake plant in a room, there'll be similar physiological responses if it's compelling. You know, if you show someone a photo, there'll be similar responses, um, which opens up a lot of opportunity in terms of kind of the ways in which we can do research. But yeah, going forwards, I think VR will be a really critical tool. And so what I'm working on is trying to figure out how best to construct those experiments. Yeah, well, as experimental design is a sort of art mm, in itself, yeah. isn't it? To be able to get it right yeah. and not have it torn to pieces in peer review. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And can I say I am also a massive advocate of fake plants for exactly that reason. Me too. <laughs> Zero maintenance, maximum psychological benefit. You know, unless bugs. I'm not a fan Zero of bugs. bugs, that is true. That is true. Mm. Although you do get a sort of wholesomeness from having to look after a plant and keep it alive if it's a real one. Yeah, that's true. That's that's true. Um I have dog for that, and she, you know, she'll like actually tell me if I'm not doing a good job. Whereas my my plants are less communicative. But yes, absolutely, I do think there's something very well. And actually, I was talking to somebody the other day who's working on kind of um, neuroendocrine responses to organic material. So there's actually probably some physiological benefits that come from kind of this neuroendocrine modulation. It's kind of the idea behind the Japanese forest bathing stuff. This idea that physically being around plants helps or regulates or impacts our kind of neuroendocrine responses, which is super interesting. And I guess air quality. So there are so many things, but I am still, I am still an advocate of fake plants when <laughs> needs must. Yeah. Well, as you, as that's sort of the, the one dimensional side of biophilic design or biointegration mm. is that like put plants on stuff, basically green roofs, mm. green walls, et cetera, et cetera, put plants around things like, yes, obviously mm. the more, detail the more in-depth sort of second dimension of it which you mentioned earlier is that sort of biological form within architectural form itself and whether mm. that's what people think of classically as biological forms like all wavy curves and stuff growing out of stuff yeah. which looks sort of organicist i suppose you might call it mm. um versus as you say the sort of fractal dimension which might not necessarily mm. look biological whether it's just highly ornamented or it's got structural order or it's got the right scaling mm -hmm. ratios and all this kind of thing that for me is where the key is in terms of yeah. it's not that it's biological that makes it well this the hypothesis is it's not that it's biological that makes it valuable it's that it shares the qualities that biological things also share and yeah. those things are valued by our brains and have certain responses and therefore architecture mm -hmm. that has those qualities has certain induces the same responses yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And so the trick there for me right now is how do you define them? How do you measure them? And how do you make sure that it's not necessarily this subjective measurement that can kind of be in it kind of um, can kind of undermine the experimental design or the rigor of the experimental design, but it's a difficult thing to do. Um, in terms of kind of the technological innovations, I do actually think that kind of image analysis or machine learning image analysis can offer a lot in terms of making it less subjective um but again 
those algorithms need to be written, which means that there's someone who's deciding how to measure them to begin with. But hopefully over time, we start to kind of incorporate um, more empirically sound ways of measuring these features. And again, that's kind of the heart of what I'm trying to do right now is how do we quantify these and what constitutes biophilic design and what constitutes a lack of biophilic design and how often are they incorporated and how does it work when say you've got a facade and then you move through that or across that facade you're walking down the street and so you're viewing it from different vantage points constantly you're not necessarily viewing it straight on all the time so how do we measure it and how do we measure the way that you move through it and these are all kind of some of the methodological limitations which are not insignificant and I think kind of get to the heart of one of the greatest battlefields of architectural science, which is this meeting of art and science. You know, this idea that architecture is fundamentally kind of a meeting of these two things. And when you're in interdisciplinary research, which I think inevitably with this type of neurophysiological or physiological architectural research, you inevitably are, how do you balance the scientific rigor of neuroscience or kind of pure science, which is not pure, but it is pure science. Um, and the kind of artistic expression that can be or is architecture in some instances because i think on one side you can get a lot of people in the architecture school who feel as though um, architectural science can be quite prescriptive um, and it can potentially tell them how they should design which is i don't believe at all the case and i can always come back to this idea of car design you know car design there's a many different kind of uh, safety functions that are required. You know, you have to have a seatbelt, you have to have a certain amount of, you know, kind of vantage, you have to have all of these different features, but there's still an incredible amount of artistry and kind of um, artistic expression and interpretation that goes into building these things. And I guess that that's kind of what we're trying to do right now with architecture. And in the past, we did it with say like, you know, tenement housing reforms and some of the really kind of fundamental architectural codes that enforce safety and kind of the prevention of disease and stuff like that. Um, so it's not new in that sense, but trying to kind of pick apart the really subtle variations and their physiological responses, um, which may seem benign if it's once or twice, you know, that these responses are triggered. You know, if you get a physiological stress response from architecture once, maybe not a big deal, but what happens if you get it again and again and again and again and again? And what does that mean over time? So. Yeah, I think speaking speaking as an architect, mm. I don't think the actual what I would call the programmatic requirements, the actual like the building regulations, the need for so and so, mm -hmm. like the, the comparison to like the car safety requirements. Mm. I don't think that's the key sticking point. I think mm. because you can you can sort of lever any kind of architecture around those requirements, and because they're compulsory, mm. like whatever you are, you can. You can make it work. They might be annoying and restrictive, but whatever. I think it's more about the sort of artistic and stylistic side. I, th I think people are of a certain, what? St a certain stylistic dogma, without, mm. without putting it any more strongly than that. Um, resist anything that might challenge that particular dogma. Mm. Um, and it's... One of the really interesting things to me is what, if you came up with a whole load of sort of algorithmic or programmatic rules that could measure like facade depth or facade complexity or these, these sorts of things, mm -hmm. how 
easily would it be to comply with those whilst levering in the least popular, ugliest possible architectural style you could? Mm. Yeah. Because it's it's amazing to me the ingenuity of architects in creating ugly buildings when they really want to. Um. <laughs> well, yeah, fair. I mean, there's a lot of ugly cars as well. Yes. Right. Yeah, and it's usually di driven by various other reasons like client side and things like that but um mm -hmm. it does seem obvious to me like if you're as architects if we're trying to create um well i suppose physiological psychological responses um and sort of trigger associations in people's brains that's basically what architecture is is you're you're trying to use the building to obviously fulfill the function of the building but also create certain feelings in certain places and all this kind of mm -hmm. thing around that. Why why would you not want a whole load of scientific evidence that says this does this, that does that, here's the evidence of this, here's the correlation between this and this, here's the mechanisms. Yeah. That seems like incredibly useful to me. So it's and I think there's more people are realizing that, but the I think yeah. the biggest barrier to it is that architecture students are effectively art students. Like I'm sure you know this. Like we most of them yeah. don't even know what a paper is, let alone how to read it or how to interpret it yeah. properly. Well, that's really interesting. And I also think that to an extent that's on researchers, not on them, but it, it would be helpful for the kind of profession and the incorporation of evidence-based design if researchers, architectural science or architectural health researchers are able to make their findings more accessible. Um, and it, it is sort of that difficulty where I think that there's a lot of incredible research that's come out, even, you know, in medical sciences and neuroscience, neuroimmunology, there's a lot of findings there that are very, very applicable to the way we build, but they're not accessible. And they're either behind paywalls and you have to be part of the university to access them, or they're written in a way that is incredibly complex, or they're just really complex ideas that, you know, take years and years of studying to kind of fully comprehend. So trying to find ways to incorporate that um, potentially a into architectural education you know kind of really integrate that into the process of being becoming an architect and then also having specific ways in which science or architectural science or architectural researchers can communicate with practitioners and help to integrate that research and my hope really um, would be to kind of help to design a methodology that allows for testing communication redesign retesting and creating these kind of feedback loops that are reasonably fast in their turnaround because once you have the method design you can turn these around quite quickly um but doing it in a way that's iterative and that allows for kind of improved design and and, and science feedback but um i guess the way to start that would be to take the findings that we have to date and try and make them applicable or accessible um, and then eventually we'll get to the stage where we can have this kind of iterative conversation between, you know, architectural researchers and architectural practitioners, because I do feel like there's quite a big, you know, kind of, there's a dichotomy between the two of them. They're quite separate. Um, and I really don't think they should be, um, in the way that I don't think that, you know, pharmacology or kind of pharmaceutical design and medical practitioners should necessarily be working in different fields entirely. They're very interconnected. And so trying to find ways to facilitate that, I think, is pretty um, key to moving forwards in evidence-based design. Yeah. I suppose it's difficult to collect the data related to that kind of thing. Like, even if you had, say, post-occupancy evaluation, like, you're not going to get mm. a client to walk around with a sort of a hairnet on taking their brain images for mm. sort of six months after you've finished their 
finish their house or something like that, are you? Like, it has to be in yeah. a controlled setting, like the settings that you've done with VR and then that kind of thing, or, or whatever, however you design it. It can't, it can't really be an on-the-ground study and really practically unless you know of particular ways of doing that. Yeah, I mean, I think that the hope would be that we have enough evidence that are in controlled environments that do have people who are willing to kind of um, partake in these more rigorous scientific studies. And from those findings, we can communicate that during the design process. That's ideal. You know, we know generally how things kind of work or how they impact people. And we can kind of intervene at the beginning as opposed to, you know, at the end when it's been built and it's difficult to kind of reconfigure things. But it is tricky, and I would say that it is in its infancy. You know, really rigorous architectural science is in its infancy, and it's something that we're working on. Um, but as with any field, you got you got to start somewhere. And I think the more evidence that we acquire, the better. The more data that we acquire, the better. And it's sort of like with, say, I'm not sure, I don't, blood pressure or blood sugar. You know, the reason we know roughly what healthy levels are are because we have a tremendous amount of data and we can conduct, you know, kind of we can uh, figure out what the averages are, what we think is largely healthy. And then it also allows us to identify the outliers who are people who maybe don't respond to certain environments the same way. I think, you know, designing for, say, dementia care is a really great example of that. You know, once we know how people experience space largely, we can start to see how various different groups experience space differently, which just allows us to design for them better. Um, it's not kind of trying to create these general design guidelines that are applicable to everybody because everybody's physiology responds the same way to everything. That's not at all the case. Um, that nuance comes, the, the kind of interpretation and the nuance comes from having the data to begin with. So, Yeah, it does seem to me that dementia and healthcare are, are the sort of gateway to all of this. And that they're yeah. they're sort of the because they're sort of scientific fields anyway, and mm. the, the outcomes are fairly easy to measure or fairly controllable, and the environments are also fairly contained and controllable. Whether it's yeah. like a dementia care home or a hospital setting or or a hospice or anything like that, like that's yeah. that seems to me like the environment where all this is going to really start. The science will really start coming out properly before it gets applied to other places. Because you have you've yeah. done you've done a bit of research on on the healthcare side of all this, haven't you? Um, in terms of like architectural design and healthcare yeah. system, or um, certainly kind of literature-based research and trying to understand sort of what, what different physiological responses to space look like. Um, but my research and my kind of interest more generally would be in preventative care, which is a little bit less sexy than, you know, actually treating people once they're un unwell. Um, but because it's sort of this invisible thing that maybe happened or maybe didn't happen, but hopefully it did happen. But this idea that actually if we can intervene before people get sick, um, that is one of the most efficient and effective forms of healthcare. Um, I also think that architecture offers this incredible opportunity in the sense that for the most part, its benefits are absorbed passively. You know, it's not like a ride your bike to work scheme where you actually have to ride your bike to work or you have to change your diet. We exist in buildings most of the time for most of us. And the impacts on our physiology happen without us really realizing it, without us consenting to it in many instances. So it also kind of sets in motion this idea of, you know, what are the kind of bioethical standards for architecture as well as this evidence base 
builds up, what does that mean? If we know that buildings make us sick or contribute to us getting sick or contribute to negative responses in our body, do architects or built environment professionals have, you know, kind of that same do no harm um, expectation put on them? Should they? I, I would say probably. But um, that's also a pretty heavy topic and something that you know requires probably someone much smarter than me to really dig into and kind of unpack but that is the one thing that comes as we collect this evidence is that we we know more um so what we do with that now but yeah i do always wonder what percentage of the sort of of the mental health crisis can be attributed mm -hmm. to architecture like if you took if you took the the um the counter point of whether or not 20th century architecture had gone a different way like mm. how much of how much of the actual the change in in people's mental health is actually down to their environments they're in and i suppose yeah. the, the it's interesting you conflated so not conflated you, you um related the data of health and well-being relating to was it architectural facade analysis based on streetscapes mm. yeah because mm -hmm. obviously that's a, an amazing sort of correlation to look at but you've got so many confounding variables in that so many it must be really difficult to tip, pull that apart it is. And I think the big thing is just always trying to um, articulate the limitations. You know, there is no world in which I'm saying this specific type of architectural form, feature, design, implement, whatever, has resulted in this pathology developing. There's there's so many things that are kind of um, that come together in order to elicit that, even look at like epigenetic expressions. Like there are so many confounding variables. That said, if we can kind of unpack or discover that certain features have some impact, I mean, anything that moves the needles is a win in my books, you know, and that's why we've got so many people working on these kind of large scale health issues because diet has a huge impact and pollution will impact it and circadian rhythm disruption and our neuroendocrine disruption or microplastics. There are so many things um, and they can only take us so far. It's not as though you necessarily change your diet, but if you're exposed to certain I don't know, toxic chemicals, it won't fix everything. But if we understand the impact to an extent of each one of them, we can kind of move it forward slowly over time. Um, and I think that there's value in that, like without a doubt. I mean, I also think that especially in the face of kind of what we're calling like a dementia epidemic, it's terrifying. It's, you know, there's, I think that it's a very scary, it's a very, well, it's a devastating condition. And so anything that we can do to help support it, same with mental health, you know, all of these different things, they have such a profound impact on the individual and on their families and on society generally, that anything that we can do to help understand it and help kind of reduce that would be a win. So yeah, I did. Yeah, lots of variables. Yeah. Well, I think the, the health and well-being community if you want to call it that how what industry hasn't quite twigged that environment and environmental psychology and aesthetics are sort of their big missing ingredient at the moment as you say like people focus on diet and they focus on sort of health and, and mental health and stress and all these sorts of things which obviously are major major factors but yeah. there's also this other chunk of the pie chart that they haven't really embraced yet which is the the environmental psychological side yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's happening. I think it's starting. I think it's, you know, I had a really interesting discussion the other day with someone who's in pharmacology and we're saying, you know, how is it that this hasn't really been explored more before? And there's a bunch of different reasons that we kind of were, you know, we didn't necessarily have the technological ability to do that. We couldn't, we couldn't prove 
these neurophysiological changes. It was very difficult to measure. Um, but also, I guess it's sort of a Maslow's hierarchy type deal. We're just trying to figure out which blocks are the biggest and how it all goes. But inevitably, they all kind of combine to move towards wellness or um, at least a reduction in kind of negative health outcomes. But it's it's a complicated area. I also think that, you know, it's difficult because when you're in architecture in and of itself, you don't necessarily have the exposure to ideas around neuroimmunology or kind of neuroscience principles or things like that. And the same goes the other way, where you don't necessarily have, you know, kind of people who are in neuroscience or in neuroimmunology who understand or are interested or um, have had exposure to architectural kind of theories and principles. So there's also kind of this just logistical thing that comes from being in the middle of them. And that I think is a with the science side and the neuroimmunology side, there's an expectation to conduct very rigorous science. And that is without a doubt critical and can't really be skimped on. You have to do it. And on the architecture side of things, there's a certain skill set. You know, architects are very good at a lot of different things, but there's this skill set in understanding spatial variables and constructing them and designing environments that could be testable. Um, and so without kind of collaboration between the two of them, it becomes very difficult to test any of it. Um, I think that that's where interdisciplinary design can be really helpful because you get to exist in the middle. Uh, the most critical element of that, I think, is that you just have to stay very, very humble and realize always that there is someone who's a specialist in those respective fields who will know this better than you. You know, I used to work with Alistair Parvin at Wiki House and he used to always talk about Donald Rumsfeldian unknown unknowns. You know, you know your known knowns. You know what you know. And then very often you know what you don't know. But you don't always not know what you don't know. And those unknown unknowns are really what get you. And that's where you kind of have to bring in specialists who would know. And that's where really good research comes from, that kind of collaboration and that openness. Um, and just trying to facilitate that as well, even in terms of funding, all of it, there are, lo there are lots of barriers, but it is happening and it's quite exciting. Yeah, I think. Well, I think you're, you're right. That's what's missing from most architecture departments, I think, or and architecture and architecture students is that mm. humility that, yes, they've got mm. their own agendas and they've got their own styles and their own ways they want to do things, but there's also mm. things you don't know that maybe will input significantly into what you're doing. Yeah, and it's also just a kind of a, a beautiful process. You know, I think interdisciplinary collaboration is a very exciting opportunity. It's, it's a way to learn constantly about different things. And I think from a science perspective, you get better science. And I think from a design perspective, you get better designs. And so in that instance, it's a win-win. But Yeah, I think you're right what you said earlier about communication, though. I think it's as much as I'd love everyone to be able to read papers properly, like if I'm if I'm mm. honest, the number of papers I read from start to beginning and actually look at all the diagrams is fairly minimal. Um, so you need you almost need like a platform within the professional organizations or something that updates constantly as part of their sure. membership and has access to yeah. all the latest papers and says, here's a summary of so and so paper, it's done studied the relationship between x and y and here's the outcome. Yeah, and what does that mean for us? How do we apply those findings? And something that I'm kind of trying to work on right now is it's this giant database of all of the studies that are kind of coming out, what they're testing, how they're testing it, what the outcomes are, and what that means for future design and how that can be implemented and trying to kind of categorize them and organize it and put it into words that are 
comprehensible, you know, that you can understand that um, makes sense, which is always a struggle. I always a struggle, yeah. but um, yeah. Because there is, there's obviously the journal environmental psychology exists. There's mm -hmm. the, is it the e environmental based design EBD journal? I think that's one that I've yeah, there's the across. Yeah, journal of, um, what is it? Evidence-based design, I believe. Yeah. It's also um, heard health environments research design journal. Um, there's a lot of really great stuff in the design of environmental research and public health. That's also very, very good. Um, architectural science review. That's the thing. There's also so many frontiers in architectural science. You know, there's yeah. there's so many different journals. It's difficult to keep up with them. Um, I've actually had to turn off my Google Scholar alerts because I find it <laughs> very overwhelming. Um, but yeah, trying to like stay up to date. You know, I can't even imagine. Like, it's my full time job just reading these and trying to understand and write about them. I can't imagine that as a practicing architect or you know kind of a healthcare professional that you're going to have the ability to go through the time to go through these things and implement them so i certainly don't think it's any shortcoming on practitioners or on architectural education it's nobody's fault it's nobody's doing a bad job here there's just a gap in the market and the market being kind of the education process and the implementation of architectural findings and i think that is a gap that needs to be filled um and increasingly i think it will be so yeah, well, the obvious place to put it for me is in CBD and continual professional mm. development, because we get like when you're in a practice, you get so and so window company comes in and pays for your lunch and gives you an hour talk on how great their windows yeah. are and why you should spec them. Um, like you almost need to, it to be included as a compulsory topic within the CPD um, requirements for architects. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think incorporating it or incorporating it into architectural education as well and giving people kind of the fundamentals, you know, and what is your circadian rhythm? What are kind of, you know, neuroendocrine responses? What is a physiological stress response? So that when these papers do come out and people do communicate them that to them during, you know, whichever kind of forum um, that they understand, because unless you've got a lot of time to read, you know, neuroimmunology research, which not a lot of people do, you know, it's a, it's a tricky thing to stay caught up on. But I, I do think that, you know, it's becoming more and more, um fashionable to talk about architectural health and kind of architectural science it's definitely kind of coming up but there's also a lot more open-mindedness you know a couple of years ago i do think you'd get bounced around departments a little bit where you know in architecture they'd be like well maybe you're public health or public health would be like well maybe you're neuroscience and then you know if you want to use some kind of sort of algorithmic analysis they're like well, maybe you're computer science and you kind of you know could bounce around departments but um i've certainly found at cambridge there's an openness where they're like go crazy you know as long as it's you know rigorous and it's yeah i guess rigorous science and there's a strong foundation for it and you've got the skill set that you need and you can develop the skill set that you need in order to do this kind of research go go for it which is incredible and i don't necessarily know if that's always been there so yeah it's difficult to i suppose to shoehorn it into the current curriculum because there's so so much that undergrads need to learn anyway that they're basically incompetent at and take a long time to learn it'd be good to mm. it'd be good to fit it more into the masters um on the part two um mm. to get it get it more part of that curriculum and have it have the sort of design exploration focus more around science and and the sort of scientific inputs there i guess but it's, yeah. there's always more to learn that's the trouble always you know but i guess that's the thing as well that you know, it doesn't matter if you're a doctor or you're an architect, there's always more research, there's always more insights that's coming up constantly. So it's like, how do you continue 
to learn and how do you you know stay open-minded as well because I do think that you know there can be some sort of indoctrination is a really strong word but you do start to kind of that is education you learn what's being taught to you and you kind of start to you could think critically and you're encouraged to think critically but inevitably you do kind of absorb through osmosis certain ideas about how things should be done um and those things are changing especially over the course of say like a career which can be you know what 40 years long a long time so well it's difficult when you get when you get a large number of the lecturers coming in are practicing architects with established practices who learnt 40 years ago or 50 years mm. ago what they were taught in architecture and now are now are sort of regurgitating that what they were taught and been practicing rather yeah. rather than the sort of so the likes of yourself are doing sort of emerging research research on things sort of teaching the undergrads and not indoctrinating them into the particular way that indoctrinating them into my into your way like you know we've got to really be careful about indoctrination but anyways let me tell you about architectural neurominology no but yeah absolutely i mean i guess it's it's that balance as well because those practitioners who've got that experience have something that i certainly don't have they've got real life experience of designing buildings and putting it into practice and so what are the reality you know like what are the practical realities of building something because that is something that i don't know and i've never done it and i will probably never do it you know i may contribute or i may test it or i may kind of you know pick it apart you know and also i do feel like architectural kind of theory architectural science it can come across as very critical um because you know we are critiquing what is built you know not necessarily in a negative way hopefully in a constructive way but inevitably there are criticisms that come from it of how we could do things better so I do really want to try and stay away from this idea that let me come in and tell you everything you're doing wrong um, and come in with some solutions because the first one is just really defeatist and quite negative and that's not fun you know really you want to be trying to give people tools in order to build in ways that you think can help in my opinion, reduce human suffering, um, which is probably quite a negative take on it. Like you could also say enhance human flourishing, which would probably be like a, a nicer way to put it, but both both of them. But this idea that, yes, let's pick it apart, let's test it, let's analyze it, let's critique it, and then let's come up with some solutions and some recommendations. And again, like the constant more research is needed preface on it all, but more research is needed before I feel like we could give any of those recommendations about what, you know, in a really emphatic way, in a way that we're quite um, confident in. I certainly wouldn't feel confident in giving any, you know, broad brush recommendations as to what good design is or how to design for, you know, reduced neuroinflammation. Not yet. Um, and you'd also have to have a lot of caveats as to who you're designing for and you get into that whole kind of confounding variables and complexity. But yeah, it's, it's a it's a balance between trying to discover research. I read a quote this morning, which I'm going to not communicate properly at all. But it's this idea that, you know, scientific discovery is not about finding something entirely new. It's about trying to understand what's there and make connections to other areas. And it's that kind of filling in of the gaps that we're, you know, trying to put things together. It's not this whole new way of seeing the world. We're just trying to kind of connect dots. And eventually it'll be, you know, kind of the picture will be developed enough that it's comprehensible yeah you know well i think it's like you mentioned you wouldn't want to come on along and give advice to sort of experienced practitioners but I, th I think it is the core role one of the core roles of the architect is to translate 
all mm. of the inputs, including the sort of neuroaesthetic inputs, into mm. a realistic building. At the end of the day, somebody on a building site has to attach one thing to another thing, usually mm. <laughs> by hand, usually. Um, and it's all it all becomes very, very practical at the end of the day. But you can feed in much higher up the stream a whole load of principles that then result in the kinds of details that you're designing, the kinds of materials you're using, and all those sorts of things. Yeah, and absolutely, architects are incredible at synthesizing information. You know, that's they're they're really good at it. It's an incredible skill set that not many people have, but this ability to take in all of these different ideas and turn it into something, it's it's quite a beautiful process. And so um, I do think it gives a lot of freedom as well. And it's kind of coming back to that idea that, you know, architectural science isn't meant to be prescriptive. It's descriptive, really. And then you can take that and do with it what you will. So mm. well, I'd love to see, like, we get all of the usual consultants, like the transport consultant and the sort of mm. the, the environmental consultant and the, the structural engineers and all these lot. I'd love to see a, uh, was it consultant architectural neuroaesthetician? giving a report like, on a planning application so and so architectural neuroaesthetician says this building is uh complies with the aesthetic requirements as defined in so and so algorithm in the design local plan of so and so council yeah yeah absolutely i mean i think it even could be more broad brush than that and it could just be kind of architectural health um you know or a kind of neuroarchitecture consultant which mm. is really i guess what it is it's, it's neuroarchitectural research but then within that umbrella are all of these kind of uh, interconnected um subfields but yeah absolutely i mean i think that that would be an incredible development in the profession um well, profession I, that, well I think um as we mentioned earlier the, the algorithms that measure the the actual sort of the buildings themselves in terms of their whatever variables you want to do whether it's like facadal complexity or or depth or particular forms or patterns or whatever it is however it is that you end up writing or anyone else ends up writing mm -hmm. algorithms based on the information that you get out of the studies that will then result in almost like a u value for aesthetics like and you'll mm -hmm. have a so and so must be between 0.6 and 0.9 in this area for to comply with our local planning policy or whatever it is and if you can have those measurements and whether it's whether there's two or three of them or just one of them that will be a very easy way to measure does this building comply or not if yeah, if you can define them well enough mm, yeah absolutely i really like the aesthetic triad which is from uh, i think it's from a paper from um anjan chatterjee at upenn and alex coburn who's at who was at cambridge and they've got this concept called the aesthetic triad. And if I've miscited that, apologies, but I'm pretty sure that's the paper that it came from. Um, and it's this idea that aesthetics or neuroaesthetics are kind of a combination of say like your cultural experience, you know, where you grew up, the kind of country or culture that you grew up in, your personal experience. So say you, you know, you got in a car accident on a bridge, you'd have a certain physiological response to bridges, presumably. And then there's your physiological response. And that's really kind of derived by this evolutionary biology and it's not universal to everyone, but there are more universal notions within that kind of like the blood sugar, blood pressure thing. You know, there will be outliers and kind of people who deviate from the norm, but there's this idea that, you know, what is it? I, I was working on a paper and it was saying that for a species that reproduces every year, it can take between 4,000 and 
18,000 generations for a lasting evolutionary trait to become fully embedded in a population. It's like, that's a really long time, which would suggest that we've not really evolved to live in cities or we've not evolved within cities in a way that we our physiology is not changed, our neurophysiology is not adapted. That's the word I want. It's not adapted to urban living yet. Potentially it will over time, but a lot of our physiological responses are derived from natural environments, which is where we evolved within. And so this idea that actually there is a part of neuroaesthetics that is physiologically based, and that's kind of the world that I like to try and stay in. Again, like I say, there's people who are much smarter who deal with the other ones. There's a lot of complexity there. I try to stay away from it. But the idea that aesthetics as well is this subjective thing. I don't necessarily agree with, you know, I like the kind of idea that beauty is really our reward for participating in evolution. You know, we go back to things that kind of allow us to thrive and to flourish, we incline towards that, which facilitates our health and wellness. And so there is sort of a more universal idea. And we see that in kind of, you know, biomorphic or kind of um, fractalized complexity and our inclinations and a lot of the kind of, you know, asymmetries and the things that we see, these patterns that we kind of can't ignore, they're, they're, they're just too prevalent to be a fluke or a one-off. And, and so trying to actually make it so that aesthetics isn't kind of conflated with your subjective preference, I think is also a huge movement that's sort of happening. And that's what neuroaesthetics is really facilitating, is this movement away from I like this because, you know, your conscious, your, your conscious preference may be for that, but neuroaesthetics, you know, in, in and of itself also considers what your subconscious is inclined towards and physiologically responding to. It's a lot more holistic, um, which I think is really interesting. Um, and it also kind of takes us away from that kind of, you know, beauty is subjective debate or, you know, it, it, it incorporates it but it brings in more complexity i guess so yeah you you would be able to presumably eventually yeah i was at a um rba event on beauty the other week and mm. uh the current president of the rba said right near the beginning anyone who says the words beauty is in the eye of the beholder will immediately be thrown out <laughs> and i was like yeah. the fact that you're saying that is so encouraging and i love that they finally admitted like no beauty is not subjective yeah, absolutely. God, whenever I think of that phrase, though, I think about, you know, when I was a teenager or a kid, you know, I went up and I bought this t-shirt and it said, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And I thought it was very profound and very cool. And it was only later that I realized that it said, beauty is in the eye of the beer holder. Um, <laughs> and, and now that I could get on board with. <laughs> and I've been wearing it for weeks at that point. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, where there's, I think that we're kind of understanding the complexity um that is aesthetic preference or aesthetic inclination um and it's a very exciting and emerging field as, as all of these things are but particularly is applied to architecture um yeah so since we're on beauty mm. can there's many ways i could phrase this apart from what, mm. are you, what are your general thoughts on beauty but do you think beauty can be defined algorithmically mm. not necessarily currently but is it possible at all to define it algorithmically not to get all academic about it but i think that we'd have to define what beauty is in this instance 
you know i shall consult my philosophy books uh, yeah well i think it's a thing where like if we're talking about our universal conscious preference is there a universal conscious preference there are certainly some patterns and trends you know like it's you know we're kind of working on averages i think you know there's kind of the average inclination and then there are some outliers you know i always joke with my supervisor that we need to do a study that tries to understand whether people who wear black turtlenecks go into architecture or if going into architecture school mean that you wear black turtlenecks so like what is you know what is our inclination and how is it defined at what point are we measuring it there are so many things um, but if we're kind of defining beauty in the way that I really like to, which is this physiological inclination to kind of evolutionary development, things that we incline towards that which we evolved within, because it facilitates our flourishing, you know, and that would be kind of in the base in the kind of the heart of a lot of this biophilic design principles, you know, biophilic biomorphism, biomimicry, all of this idea of kind of how we incorporate it, be it organic matter, but also the fractalized forms, the kind of um, you know, fractalized complexity and, and implementation, implementation of these geometric configurations, that kind of beauty. Yes. To an extent, I think that we could certainly derive some insights from that, that would suggest certain patterns and processes kind of, you know, pattern language style vibes kind of understanding that, you know, there are yeah, patterns in life, patterns in the world that we kind of respond to and and uh, exist within. But a broad brush, everybody in the entire world will find this master architectural form to be aesthetically pleasing in all ways. I think maybe a stretch, though. You know, who knows? <laughs> yeah, there's a great website. I can't remember the name of it. Where basically where people rank buildings based on beauty. It's one of those mass vote up, vote down ones. It's got like yeah. tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of votes, and obviously they're all all highly ornamented, mostly landmarks, all the way down from mm -hmm. the top. A lot of them, some really not particularly well known though. Until you, I think you get to like number eighty or something, and you finally get to a, a modernist building. It's something like yeah, the Chrysler Building or something like that. That is very interesting, and I think I know the data set. Is it the University of Warwick one? Could be. I thought. Yeah. I, I think it's even just a populist website where they're just upvoting and downvoting things. Yeah, um, because the one at Warwick basically has all of these architectural facades. It's the one that I was using at Oxford, which is these geospatially geospatially located architectural facades that people have voted on. And I think it's like two hundred thousand images, and there's about a million votes, or there was when I was using the data set as to what is aesthetically pleasing and what is not and that was the kind of data set that i tried to find the correlation between if um using the machine learning like what is the integration of biomorphic fractalization in these buildings how is it incorporated um looking at things like you know spatial frequency and, and the way that we engage with the form um and is there any correlation with improved public health in the areas where those buildings exist and that was kind of um, a bit of a spark moment. I was like, oh my God, I think there is. Yeah. You know? It's so difficult though, isn't it? Because obviously there's a, the obvious correlation is, oh, well, the nicer buildings that are more ornamented are in richer areas, which for a whole host mm -hmm. of other reasons have better health outcomes. Yeah. And tried to kind of um, trying to statistically control for as many confounding variables as you possibly can. Um, statistics being one of the easier ways to do it, though you have to get into all of the kind of nitty gritty of how are they measured, you know, how reliable is the data, um, but you know, the methodological limitations that are plaguing my life forever. So, <laughs> well, being a scientist, that's, that's part of your mm, fun of your day to day, job. isn't it's it? Yeah. Job. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, but... that's well, that as going back to it again, the the algorithmic analysis of facades for me is the the key point because when I'm sitting here doing a so and so 3D model using Autodesk Revit or some or whatever I'm using, mm -hmm. if I can have a little number on the side that says your so and so aesthetic, yeah variable rating if you can measure it algorithmically is x yeah. y or z however yeah. that's defined whether through sort of spatial analysis through algorithms or through ai relating it to other things mm -hmm. like that's that's sort of the key measure of okay this is beautiful enough or whatever that is and again Absolutely. are there ways of getting around that could you create an extremely ugly building yeah. i think the obvious um, example for me of this is the sort of hyper organicist um the sort of creepy alien kind of architecture mm. uh, which you would probably fulfill a lot of the same algorithmic criteria that you were set for beautiful buildings but yeah. we have a sort of visceral response to this oh that's horrible yeah yeah absolutely and i think that even if it was something like i don't know fractal d value that would be a great you know and the thing is that is something um I've, sp uh, I've spent kind of some time looking at um, like backend data systems design or, you know, kind of how BIM models are put together. And that is something that could be incorporated. I think when we have enough information um, that actually you could be designing in real time while calculating, say, the fractalized devalue of the building, recognizing that that's not it. That's not the gold standard for the best building in the world. You know, if you have the best, but it is certainly an indicator of more biophilic design, which potentially might be more aesthetic design or you know, however you want to define it. But I do think that that is possible. And I do think that writing programs that plug into BIM models may be one of the best ways for us to incorporate architectural science and architectural health into practice. Something that's taught in schools so that there's a kind of an understanding as to why it's important and then a direct incorporation like that would be my dream, you know, to actually be able to develop kind of a software that is really a plugin for that, that gives those insights as you're designing in real time. Yeah. So, I'm sure that's something you could plug into Grasshopper or into Rhino or something like yeah. that. Definitely. Right. Definitely. Yeah. But it's, it's, as you say, it takes the research. It takes the people doing the, writing the programs. So you need to, yeah. you need the uh, Global Institute of Architectural Science or something like that to exist. Yeah, I guess there's the Academy for Architectural Neuroscience, and that's a great start. And, you know, that's kind of reasonably new in the grand scheme of kind of architectural institutions. But it's it's coming. I really I really believe that this kind of, you know, um, movement towards architectural science, architectural health, evidence-based design is kind of coming into itself. Um, and, yeah, like I keep saying, you know, the driving force being good science. And trying to conduct as much good science because I do feel as though that one of the reasons why it's often dismissed is because people say that the science isn't rigorous enough and that you know it's not comprehensive enough this you know kind of spatial resolution isn't good enough there's too too many confounding variables that aren't controlled for they may be right they may be wrong but over time I think as it gets better as the science gets better as our ability to control for these confounding variables improves the science will become more and more compelling it'll be difficult to ignore um so that's the that's the goal i guess yeah well the other thing we haven't mentioned of course is in set client incentives towards this which is always the hardest mm. part for me because everyone thinks oh it's really gonna be super expensive but if you can yeah. if you can take your say fractal d value or whatever it is and then say yeah. okay we, we've got this paper that or this set, set of data that relates so-and-so fractal d value to so-and-so increase in employee well-being or occupier well-being or something like that mm -hmm. 
you can then say, okay, Mr. Client, who wants to build a big office building, if you yeah. increase your fractal devalue by so and so much, your employee well-being value is likely to go up by this much, which will save you that much per year in mm. employee absenteeship or something. And yeah. suddenly you've got a financial mechanism that incentivizes better design um, yeah, or more absolutely. complex design. Um, whereas at the moment, they're just going to say, oh, that's more complex. It's going to cost oh. more. I just want my nice big glass curtain wall and that's simple and so and so. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess there's kind of two ways. Like you said, there's two ways to go about it. One would be the financial incentive directly from the client, you know, whose workforce is more efficient, who takes less sick days, who all of those things, which is very kind of utilitarian, but potentially the most compelling or, um, I don't know, the, the kind of easiest to sell. Um, you can also kind of go through public policy and mandate, which is would be the dream, you know, where actually you have to do this. But it also, you know, you think about kind of, you know, public health econometrics, it's really expensive to treat sick people. Not only is there a huge human suffering associated with it, but it's also really expensive. And so this idea that potentially if we could avoid people getting as sick or sick, hopefully totally, um, that would be ideal. So kind of maybe government regulations would be one really good way to go about that as well. But in terms of kind of client appeal, the other thing is that people do value their health. So would you pay more to live in a building that's been empirically validated as, you know, more healthy or better for your physiological well-being kind of long-term? I think people would potentially pay for that. Or if it's kind of a real estate developer, they may get more investment if their building's been tested or has been approved or incorporates certain principles. Um, so there are a couple of different kind of sneaky ways in forcing people to do what I think is the right thing. Well, that's I, Which, I, I, we're saying that rating, yeah. I'm imagining, you know, the EPC ratings you get for energy. Mm. The little thing, mm. I'm imagining one of those for aesthetics. So like your, uh, your building is so yeah, and so rated on the aesthetics. health generally, you know, and, and all of that. And it's, you know, it's not just architectural neuroscience. It is, like you said before, it's, you know, it's, it's lighting and circadian rhythm. It's, you know, the types of materials you use in neuroendocrine dysregulation. It's noise pollution. It's thermal comfort. It's all of these things. It also is architectural form, which I think is kind of the least explored, which is why I'm particularly interested in it. You know, what is the geometric configuration? So that is like this kind of untouched, not untouched. There are people working on it, but I don't think it's as... Um, explored as some of the other areas but I do think that there's a lot of value so that would be like a very comprehensive architectural health review of a building um, so there are a few ways to, to kind of go about it the question is just where are you how difficult it is to kind of get people to implement these things right yeah we're definitely a long way off it's good to see the um from the sort of the, the um state regulation side obviously we've got the design codes coming up in the UK now which are starting to come in um, and I think this, a lot of the evidence on this will feed into those quite a lot. Yeah. If you say, maybe not explicitly initially, but later on you might say, okay. Yeah. Um, is there any part of this subject that I haven't mentioned yet that you think is worth exploring? Any like, even if it's a tiny little nitty gritty area of like. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the really interesting things is actually like what this means for our physiology. You know, what is kind of architectural neuroinflammation or neuroimmunology and what what significance does that have? Like how big an impact could it potentially have, even though we've kind of talked about all of the confounding variables that exist. So it's not necessarily just the built environment that would impact it. But like, what does that actually mean 
for our health and wellness long term, which I think would be kind of one of the interesting elements of, you know, architectural health education. So ideas like what actually happens, you know, what is neuroinflammation? Like it's, it's the inflammation of the brain, we know that, but what does it contribute to? Um, I think that's a particularly interesting area, kind of a technical one, but, um, you know, it's one that's mediated primarily in many ways through physiological stress responses. So this idea that kind of seemingly benign things in architecture, small stressors may have a much more significant impact than we initially thought is this thing called um, allostatic overloading, which is kind of um, the process that allows you to return to homeostasis. Um, and so it's kind of how do you maintain your balance? But if you have something that's constantly pushing you out of that balance, you know, usually you've got systems in the body that allow you to return to your homeostatic kind of base. But if you're in an environment that continues to push you out through noise, through pollution, through architectural configuration, um, what does that mean over time? And that's where you kind of get into the chronic um, inflammation, like extended chronic stress, chronic inflammation. And that is when it gets really problematic. And I think that the architectural element there is particularly profound in the sense that we spend so much time in buildings. Um, and like we said before, we often spend time in buildings that we didn't necessarily like consent to being in. We have to go to there. You know, we have to go. We've got to go to work. We've got to go walking down the street. We've got to do all of these things. Um, so I think that that's a really kind of interesting element to it as well but yeah it's it reminds me of the the phrase 99 invisible obviously a famous architectural mm -hmm. podcast yeah you only yeah. Re only really notice these things when they're when they're um faulty or when they annoy you like good design oh. is is 99 invisible it is it's sort of around you but you're right it's sort of it's not something you can necessarily notice particularly easily it's it's very sort of chronic in that sense isn't it that you sort of it just chips away at you either positively or negatively sort of a little yeah. bit at a time and that's which is obviously what makes it so hard to measure as well yeah it does um but i mean it kind of comes back to that like i always like that thing that you know the art asks question science finds answers and design provides solutions or that's not the proper quote but that's kind of the general idea that actually it is this kind of collaborative process between all of these different disciplines that allows us to go from an inclination or kind of a hypothesis all the way to a design solution but with regards to architecture it is kind of trying to pick apart these seemingly benign things that are so subtle that maybe they don't seem like that big a deal but when you're exposed to them multiple times a day every day for your entire life they are actually quite profound and quite significant um but yeah it's it's a complicated process but well, like you said, our, our uh, brains have evolved for a certain environment and our environment has way overtaken what our brains were evolved for. So it's up to likes of myself as architects or our, my profession to hmm. do what we can to bring back the environment to match our brains more than the other way around, I think. Yeah, I, I think that if we wait for our brains or physiology to catch up with the built environment, it, it, it would just it's going to be a long, 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 long time. So, yeah. yeah. So let's wrap this up pretty soon. But what's your current problem that you're working on in your research? Like, What's currently occupying your thoughts and your uh, mental bandwidth? Yes. So it's kind of what we've been talking about, which is this idea as to how do we quantify architectural form? How do we quantify um, specific deviations in the built environment. So how do we measure them so that I know when I'm testing physiological responses, I know what I'm testing um, and kind of trying to identify these forms. I guess, you know, a lot of the biophilic 
research and kind of theory would be, you know, defining and kind of pushing a lot of the ideas that I'm working with right now. I mean, I'm really the fractal value and the fractal kind of integration is really at the heart of a lot of it. Um, but everything from, you know, ceiling height to window position to, you know, kind of the sharpness of certain angles, like all of it contributes, but how do we measure it? And then also how do we measure it in a way that we can measure again in the same way? Like how do we kind of con create this kind of continuity so that there's not this subjective kind of interpretation? Um, but that's the biggest thing, you know, in terms of the physiological responses, we've definitely got some issues. Um, because it's difficult to measure neuroinflammation. It's not an easy thing to measure. Um, there are some new kind of tools that are coming out that allow us to do it more easily um, and provide more insight. But it's the architectural side of things. It's kind of, that's a really, you know, it's a, it's a very tricky solution, yeah. a tricky question. But are you exploring that in 2D or in 3D or in both? 3d primarily okay. what through models or through yeah it would be through models i mean a lot of the, like you kind of it's theory based in many ways and it's trying to kind of pull in all of the existing literature from environmental psychology evolutionary biology uh, stuff like nico salangaros and kind of you know the mathematics of architecture construct a lot with adrian bijan a lot of people who have done a lot of really incredible thinking on how space has been configured in the past um, and what some of the pattern kind of pattern language again so, you know what are some of the patterns or some of the ways in which we've built and then picking them apart trying to tie them to specific theories of neurophysiological response and development and then put together a really tight empirical study to test it but i do find that one of the hardest things is actually picking the architectural feature to assess um, and creating a model that's compelling enough that you feel as though it's a semi-realistic depiction of being in that kind of architectural environment mm. um, i think that's where like collaboration with architects specifically is going to be really really helpful um because you know you'll have the ability to create very very beautiful realistic renders but that are you know computationally derived and can be altered quite easily in many instances but it's really tricky um <laughs> i can imagine and, yeah keeping me up at night no i'm trying to really kind of like figure it out but, but what about you? Like, what do you think, you know, in terms of like defining principles um, or architectural practices, patterns that we incorporate either kind of consciously or subconsciously, like, what do you think are some of the kind of most common architectural features that are incorporated into design that potentially would warrant these stress responses? Well, it's, I think, I think individual features are, are sort of less important for me i think it's more because they're mm -hmm. so specific to building typologies and to all those sorts of things that they're, yeah. they're also sort of a more of a micro level i think the more the what what nikos calls structural order the the mm -hmm. sort of ratios between things the 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 fractal pattern work the level of different scaling um the depth of things as well um mm -hmm. it's it's very it's so hard to analyze i think as well it's mm. the trying to distill that into different principles is very difficult um yeah. i think you can sort of you could measure things at different almost different resolutions as well to use the way that um uh mark foster gage puts it in terms of resolution mm. uh, if you have a sort of a, a flat glass plate facade at one dimension or two dimensions it feels flat but then it might have little 
gaps in between so you go one extra resolution down and you've suddenly got an extra way of measuring it yeah it's almost like the way we design buildings like when you've got a block model you'll still start designing things in blocks and then it'll be slightly more detailed blocks and then it'll be detailed blocks with extra little elements on and then suddenly you're getting more and more and more detail it's the the lod and loi in bim language um interesting way of going about it maybe actually a really interesting way of defining specific architectural forms or kind of um you know structural orders and testing them is actually to go at it in that kind of level you know where you're using blocks and then you're making it slightly more granular and you're looking slightly more granular and at what point do you start to see changes and then you try a different configuration and you do the same thing and it's almost just like peeling back mm. um, it also gives you like a blank facade right to begin with where it's you know a neutral test like a, a neutral test so you've got like a neurological state that is not colored by any uh, visual exposure to a form yeah so well that's that's what, yeah that sort of continuity is hard because obviously you take a picture of one building and you can't make it exactly the same as another building but you've got to make sure that mm. this lighting is the same the environment's the same the angle's the same all this kind of thing to sort of make them yeah. equal um it'd be great to relate the um do you know the sketchup library of all the various mm. buildings that people have spent vast amounts of time designing if you cross relate the data set of that of i don't know our complexity analyzed algorith yeah. algorithmically somehow with 2d photographs of those buildings uh, and see yeah, what see what the would... correlation is yeah well and there's some really great um research that's kind of come out that's tried to uh, understand what the relationship between 2d and 3d um, representations of similar things are and it's always interesting to me that they're reasonably compelling you know the findings from the 2d are, are decent replications um i guess it's kind of the same with vr you know combining or comparing a VR environment, a VR architectural environment with the actual build building. And that's one of the really cool things is if you get to work with a client through the whole process. So like, let's test the building in VR. Let's test the renders. Let's test the 2D. Let's test the 3D. Let's test the VR render. And then let's test the actual building the second year, you know, experiencing it for the first time. Okay, what about a week later? What about a month later? What about five years later? Like, what are the changes in kind of doing these kind of longitudinal studies? Again, confounding variables being the bane of my existence but also <laughs> part of the job but that is a really interesting way of kind of going about it um we well, just, I mean, I think you it just need the data really set don't you like with the, the you need a really good data set you need a really good data set that has a strong theory uniting or kind of unifying all of the changes and defining describing why um not necessarily why you respond to those changes that can be done later in the discussion where you draw from different theories but you need a very robust data set that describes and defines all of the different changes between the buildings yeah that's tricky to get i've always wanted um bim models to be compulsory for planning applications and then you'd yeah, get everyone would be submitting them well <laughs> we'll be lucky it's considering you mm. can get away with a sort of pencil drawing on the back of a napkin for a planning application in this country i'm not sure how uh, how likely it is to, to compel bim models that soon as much as i'd love to see it yeah fair enough eternal optimist yeah. but it would be it would be helpful and also you know it would be kind of like that neurostatic study in the sense that we know kind of on average how far people travel more or less I mean, it's, it's you know again averages but 
we'd be able to kind of see what buildings are you experiencing on a daily basis? Because, you know, it's not as though people just spend their days in their house or just spend their days in their office. Like where, what's your walk to work? Kind of a um, space syntax lab kind of vibe. You know, where, what are your patterns? Where are you kind of moving through space? What are you seeing on a daily basis or quite frequently? Because that's a big part of it as well, you know? Mm. Um, well, you've got the two. You've got the two user bases, haven't you? You've got the the members of the public who are subjected to the facades of the buildings they pass, um, yeah. or the public buildings they enter. But then you've got the the user base of the actual in the buildings themselves, whether that's yeah. the public in public buildings or private individuals in private buildings. And it's sort of, yeah. I guess, it's a very different kind of analysis um, if you're in in those sorts of spaces. Definitely. I mean, I'm much more interested personally in facades because there is that kind of forced movement or forced exposure, force seems very aggressive, but you know, it's kind of that kind of um, unintentional exposure where people are just, they just happen to be there or happen to be moving through there. Um, so I find facades particularly interesting. Um, but again, there's all of these issues with exposure time. Like how long do you actually have to be exposed to a building for it to have a profound impact on your physiology you know are these exposures is, is five seconds enough it doesn't have to be five minutes do you have to spend five hours looking at the building for there to be a meaningful change um and so trying to understand exactly what that looks like i don't know maybe it's you know like gopros on <laughs> someone having people record like i'm not sure what the study exactly will be but i do think that that would be a very interesting um kind of issue to unpack yeah i tell you what could what comes to mind is what could be a good data set is students at different universities because obviously they're mm. There are very particular architectural aesthetics in like the red brick universities in this country. You've got city universities like yeah. Oxbridge, Bath, Durham, those sorts of ones. Yeah. You've got the campus universities like Kent who have got like plate glass and brutalism most of the time. So that yeah. could be a good data set, I suppose, and sort of an, an yeah. analyzing their, uh, their experiences because they spend their whole lives or for the time they're there or most of their lives in those environments. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's so many interesting kind of avenues to take with it too um, which is exciting for other people who are potentially interested in so to all of those out there who are interested in architectural science or kind of architectural physiology um there's a lot there's a lot to study um but yeah that would be a really interesting one i think also the kind of the contained nature of the campus um is helpful in that respect you know yeah it's difficult because you want big data sets that you can cross relate can't you that's to get the just weed out the confounding variables yeah exactly and, you know and it's also one of the things where and this is something that i always have to kind of remind myself and i have various different people who always try to remind me you're like okay walk before you can run you know i'd love to do this 3d interpretation of a city of you moving through but they're like well in reality it will probably be trying to understand the neurophysiological responses to one specific type of architectural facade compared to one other and you're like okay that that we can do and then it will very, very likely be proven wrong at some point, which is how this scientific exploration works, where you're just waiting for someone to prove you wrong, um, which is a good thing, which means there's progress happening. And then you do it again, and then you do it again, and it gets a bit better and a bit better and a bit better. And then over time, hopefully, we've got something that's you know quite profound and potentially very helpful. But um, yeah. Well, that's where your that's why your humility and your lack of ego has to come in and be like yes it's a yeah. good thing that someone disproved all of my research yeah Hooray. exactly you're like yay i'm wrong <laughs> cool <laughs> yeah you have to really you've got to have a, a thick skin i think for those ones but um part of the process i guess but yeah. it is 
is there anything architects or architecture students you think could do more to engage with all of the sort of neuro aesthetics and all this stuff on a day-to-day basis yeah i do i mean i think that just having a general curiosity about it is is huge um and just kind of trying to stay open-minded um again it's that issue of kind of um, moving information out into the world so you kind of do have to have that very kind of active curiosity of trying to be like, well, what, what would this mean for the people? And what would this mean? Not just kind of, you know, you said architecture students are very often kind of art students um, looking beyond kind of the artistic expression of it and being like, okay, actually, what would the practical realities be? Um, and how would that make people feel? But not just kind of an emotional way, though that's important too. But I guess it's sort of just having an appetite for it. Um and being open-minded to it you know i do definitely get met in some instances with a fair bit of kind of dismissiveness and aggression which is to be expected on both sides i mean there are there are lots of you know flaws and gaps and all of those things and i think it's again it's part of the process and it's important to be challenged so i i welcome it um but also kind of keeping in an open mind and being like okay well what actually would that mean and how could we potentially use our studies to and like our studies like actually being in school and the projects we use in school to kind of help move this um evidence base forward but i guess just really being kind of open to it would be the biggest thing you know be open to more complexity be open to these ideas of that are kind of coming out but again i think it needs to be met halfway like we've got to make it accessible too so yeah and don't get caught in architectural dogmas is what i'd say (laughs) of any kind from any direction yeah absolutely including anyone that you know potentially i was going to say that i might advocate for and i was like no (laughs) we don't advocate for them we just we're just trying to test them and prove them and take it as you will but yeah try and stay away um to the best of your abilities you know kind of keep an open mind keep, keep an open mind and keep a scientific mind as well yeah intellectual curiosity is key you know with all things um and then also yeah it's i got i can't always come back to it because i think it's a really really important um element and that's also just just to kind of stay humble you know and then kind of accept that we can't know everything nobody can you know there there is this inevitable kind of transfer of knowledge that happens when we collaborate and this idea that you know we can't do it all by ourselves and that's sort of the beauty of the creative process of the scientific process scientific discovery it's this kind of collaborative nature and that is so important and i can't emphasize that enough um you know there's always someone who's going to be better better than you at something you know and you're going to be better than other people at something too we've all kind of got our niche um so i think that's a pretty pretty key point as well for everybody you know myself included like yeah read read philosophy as well as as well as science i think i'd say (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's the intersection, right? You can't get too deep in any of them. It's spoken like a true interdisciplinary. So, says the person like who's a doing a PhD. Spoken like someone who's not that good at anything. Someone who's not really that great at anything. You, know, you can't be good at everything. Yeah, but, don't get too deep into something, says the person doing a PhD in something extremely specific. <laughs> yeah, like the most niche thing ever. So, you know, I'll eat my words. but Yeah, I'm sure. Brilliant. All right. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much, Cleo. And uh, we look forward to seeing the uh, outcome of all of your research. Oh, thanks. I'm looking forward to see the incorporation of the findings in your your design practice as, as we go. We'll do our best.